1: One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two, Two experts.
0: experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about bite mark analysis. And I'll be talking
1: about an assassination attempt. Is it Reagan? It is. Oh, oh
0: <laughs> I'm so excited. I, I don't know anything about you this. You don't? No. I didn't know anything about
1: it either. Okay, this is Chris. Yes. Woo. But I'm going first. You go first. (laughs) I saw you looking at me like I was supposed to start. You go first. I I think I'm just
0: excited for yours and I kind of (laughs) wanted you to start. But fine, we'll go in order. Okay, first of all, poor Ian. Ian had no idea that when he emailed with two cases I would just like do them
1: do both of them. <laughs> do you think he's going to be upset about
0: that? No, well no you're right not poor Ian <laughs> but I just think it's funny because people email in with a or like reach yeah, out to us. Yeah we get a with, lot of case suggestions. And it's rare that we'll like that one will just happen to strike our fancy well ian i'm sorry um, i just flipped that right into the mic yeah and by the way who are you drinking red bull it's right now so
1: good it's the new flavored red bull this is pear flavored it's delicious what year is it it is 2019 <laughs> <laughs> it's sugar free <laughs> what does that have to do with anything <laughs>
0: anyway so first off major shout out to this Vox video. I'm not going to tell you the title of it because it would give too much away. Because I didn't
1: put it in my notes.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's actually true. (laughs) It's at the very end. But no, like almost everything comes from that Vox video. So go check it out if you want to hear a more professional retelling of this case. We're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's 6.45 in the morning, November 3rd, 1984. Mm. A man had just made a very upsetting discovery. He'd found a woman's dead body in a vacant lot by his house. Wow. He immediately told the police what he'd seen, and they rushed to the scene. That's where they found 63-year-old Mm-hmm.
1: So...
0: Whatever had happened to her had been awful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Vox video showed photos. Really? Not not complete. Like, they they blocked out some stuff. But this poor woman, when police arrived, she was just wearing a pair of socks, one shoe, and her bra and shirt had been pulled over her head. She'd been beaten, stabbed, probably raped. She'd undergone just an awful attack. Police began to talk to her friends and neighbors, trying to figure out, you know, like, did she have any enemies? What was her life like? But she didn't have any enemies. She played bingo at church every Friday night. She collected aluminum cans to recycle. Everyone said she was just really nice. Mm -hmm. So what had she been doing on the night she was attacked? Coming home from bingo. Oh, shit. Police were able Taking to... Taking est- her
1: life in her hands. Yeah, evidently. Ugh. Not, a ri- not risky behavior at all. No! Ugh. So police
0: were able to establish that she left for bingo at like 8 p.m. And that meant she probably returned home around midnight. hmm Her friends had dropped her off near her house, although another article I saw said she took the bus, but whatever. That was the last time they saw her. Investigators were kind of screwed. They talked to a lot of people in the neighborhood. No one had seen anything. Mm -hmm. And this was before they could test for DNA. So without any witnesses and without some guilt-stricken criminal coming forward, they didn't have much to go on. Yeah. They did find a knife near her body, but when they dusted it for fingerprints, nothing. Nothing. But the case wasn't totally hopeless. Whoever had murdered Ione had done something kind of strange. What? He'd bitten her. Like bitten her a lot.: Oh gosh. Yeah. Investigators took dozens of like high-quality photos of the bite marks and did basically the only thing they could think to do: they had a dentist come yeah. in. Makes sense? Dr. Lowell Thomas was a dentist, a forensic uh, odontologist? Uh, thank you, a forensic odontologist, <laughs> <laughs> and a professor of dentistry. So they brought him in to examine her body. He made impressions of the marks, studied them up close, and pretty quickly he made a really helpful discovery. The killer had jacked up teeth. Ooh. The dentist told detectives that whoever did this had an abnormality in one of his upper teeth. So Lowell worked with this police sketch artist, and they created an image that he believed would resemble the killer's teeth. Wow. Detectives were like, great. Three days after Ione was murdered, they were going around talking to neighbors, and that's when they met Robert Lee Stinson. Mm Mm-hmm. Robert was twenty years old, and he lived with his mom and his siblings, directly behind the vacant lot where her body was found. Ooh, Do you have jacked up teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Detectives started asking him questions. You know, where were you the night of the murder? And he told them that he'd been at a party. He'd stayed there till about eleven thirty at night, then went home, fell asleep, slept till like nine a.m. Nothing woke him up. Nothing unusual happened to him. He didn't do anything wrong. He just went to a party and went home. No big deal. But as they were talking, the detectives started telling him jokes. And Robert laughed. And that's when they noticed that one of his upper right teeth was missing. Mm -hmm. Right away, Detective Thomas Jacqueline thought, we got the guy. Yeah the detectives felt great because that so that had been like their strategy as they walked around talking to people they were trying to get people to laugh so they could just see people's teeth no word on what joke made Robert laugh Mm. I wish we knew I know do you have a guess like a killer knock knock joke I don't know knock knock who's there dishes dishes who dishes the police open up (laughs) that's so stupid (laughs) Let me tell you something. If you went around biting people, you'd be so mouth. easy. <laughs> <laughs> what if What if you knew that was the strategy someone was trying to get like what I'd be fucked like <laughs> <laughs> You just have to wrap a scarf ah. around your mouth. <laughs> so they had found their guy. Brilliant. Wonderful. Or was it? <gasps> Don't <dun, dun>, <laughs> They told him that they needed him to undergo a dental exam, just to clear him as a suspect. And Robert said, sure, because he had nothing to hide. So he went to Dr. Lowell Thomas Johnson, and Lowell said, could you just part your lips like this, Robert? And Robert did, and Lowell said, okay, now, could I look down here? Okay, that's fine. So that was it. That was 20 seconds. What? Uh Uh-huh. What's wrong? That's not a very thorough examination. 20 whole seconds. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) At no point did he consult the sketch that he'd made with that sketch Mm -hmm. artist. He didn't need to. He knew that Robert's teeth teeth matched the sketch he'd made based off of those bite marks. No. In fact, Brandy, the similarities were remarkable.
1: I'm no odontologist, but... I'm saying there's no way you could know that after 20 seconds. Maybe you're just a crappy odontologist. you got to do that thing where you bite on the paper and it leaves the...
0: That's when you remove excess lipstick. No! (laughs) It's called blotting. (laughs) With that, the court ordered... That Robert Lee Stinson undergo a complete dental examination. Oh, so that was like first preliminary
1: Uh twenty seconds, right? How long's the actual exam going to take? Probably forty seconds. Right? I don't know.
0: So let's back up and talk about forensic odontology for a minute. What? By this point, forensic odontology had been around for decades. I think longer than that. What is with your face right now? What? What? Let me show you how you were looking. I'm listening to family. You guys, she had one finger up that was propping her mouth open. <laughs> and then she's acting like I'm the weirdo for not being able to have a conversation with her right now. Oh, I'm sorry for being the freak here. <laughs> so it's used a lot to basically identify dead bodies. Yeah. And it's pretty accurate. You know, if you have x-rays, if you have dental records, and then you have a body right there, you can fairly accurately make an ID on somebody. Right. That makes sense. But it wasn't until, like, the 1970s that forensic odontology started to compare bite marks to potential criminals. Mm. So by the time this science was used on Robert, it was fairly new. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe science is a generous term. Yeah. The first time bite mark analysis even appeared in a court case was 1975. Wow. It was the people versus marks. So this guy was accused of killing his landlady. And the thing that, you know, really helped in his conviction was that the killer had bitten her nose and left. I know. I know. Ah, that makes my stomach all floppy. I know. I, don't I know. Like that at all. So he'd left teeth marks. And the case went to the Court of Appeals, and the appellate court judges were like, yeah, they admitted this is not an established science, but they allowed it anyway. Mm -hmm. And since our system runs off of precedent, since one court allowed it, a bunch of other ones did too, then a few years later came the Ted Bundy trial.
1: I was going to say, I just watched the... How
0: was it? Oh, it was good. Was It it? really good. Okay, I need to watch it then. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so one of the big pieces of evidence in that trial was bite mark. bite mark analysis. Mm-hmm. Once that happened, there was, like, no stopping this bite mark yeah. stuff. It was everywhere because now there was a bunch of precedent plus a major trial that everyone yep. had followed. It didn't matter that bite mark evidence wasn't an established mm-hmm. science. It had been
1: accepted into our court
0: system, and once you get in, it's hard to get out.
1: Um yeah, we're really sleeping on that Ted Bundy movie. It's almost entirely about his trial. Really? Yeah, what the fuck were we waiting for? I don't know. Yeah, I, David and I watched it this past weekend. It was really good.
0: Well, why didn't you do that for this,
1: this week? I figure everybody knows about it already. Yeah, probably. We needs to hear about Bundy now. I mean, that's kind of how I feel Everyone's about, the like... the Bundy tapes. Everybody's seen the Bundy movie. Yeah. Old news, snooze fest.
0: That's a little bit how I feel about the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, same.
1: People have asked us to do it. First of all, it's gigantic. We would need a four-hour episode to scratch the surface. Yeah. And I feel like everybody knows it. It's so good, though. It is really good. Like, if you
0: came in one day and you were like, I'm doing O.J. Simpson, I'd be
1: thrilled. Yeah.
0: So maybe that's how people feel. Maybe. They just want to hear it from our sweet Midwestern voices. That's right. (laughs) Like I said, once it's once it's in the court system, it's hard to get it out. The Vox video was so interesting because they talk about how in science it's kind of just the opposite. You're always trying to prove and disprove and like get better and better and better. But the court system works totally differently because, you know, we want everyone to have a fair trial. And one of the ways you can do that is like, well, what happened to this previous person? So then and so it's like. It's terrible for this type yeah, of thing.
1: That's so true. I've never thought about that before.
0: Well, thank you. I'm genius. Oh, Vox didn't come I up bet, with that point. I bet Vox Kristen did. That out completely. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, this was all pretty scary because bite mark analysis was so new that no one had studied it enough to know whether people who did bite mark analysis could do so with any accuracy mm-hmm. whatsoever. Yeah. So. Dr. Lowell Thomas Johnson did a more thorough examination of Robert Lee Stinson's teeth. This time, he did an extensive and exhaustive analysis. Mm -hmm. So don't worry. Two minutes. (laughs) He stopped for Red Bull, (laughs) kept going, and he found that Robert's teeth would produce bite marks identical to those found on Ion's body. Did they make him make
1: tooth marks? Bite marks?
0: Um, we'll talk more about what they had him do. But yeah, they did They did a lot of impressions. They did a mold. They did the whole What's the difference shipping. between
1: an impression and a mold, Kristen? Do you feel like this is a trick question I just it's, asked you?
0: <laughs> I mean, I feel like it could be the same thing, right? Yeah. But the mold is where you have something tangible that you could... Yeah, that's what an impression is. All right, all
1: right. Impression, you put the tray with the goo in. Yeah. Sits. Uh-huh. And then it comes out. And then I guess what you're saying, you take the impression and then you pour the mold from the impression. You're right, Kristen. I apologize sincerely. One more time for <laughs> the people in the back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the evidence in this case was overwhelming. Don't make that face. I don't
1: feel like it is. Who
0: are you to argue I'm, with Dr. Lowell Thomas Johnson? You're right. Who am I? Exactly. Exactly. It was overwhelming, Brandy, Okay. which was very strange of him to say, considering that when he first examined the bite marks on Ione's body, and he did that sketch with the sketch artist, his drawing showed that the killer was missing an upper right lateral incisor. Mm-hmm. But Robert was missing an upper right central incisor incisor.
1: Mm, That is a big difference. That's your front tooth or your one next to it. Yeah. Uh, Pretty
0: important detail,
1: Uh, huh? Yeah. And you can easily tell the difference, I feel like, because those teeth are nowhere near the same size. Right. Of course, that was never mentioned.
0: Okay. So let's keep on trucking, shall we? All right. Daniel Blinka was the assistant DA for Milwaukee County, and he listened to Lowell's impassioned argument but Daniel wasn't completely convinced. Okay, he was... Daniel was not the only one on this prosecutorial yeah. team, but he was the only one interviewed for this video. And it was interesting to hear him because he was just like...
1: Got set on Igloo in
0: here today? I or? know, it's so cold. What? Do you going to change it? <laughs> Let's see what we've got here. It's so cold. Let's do 72. Excellent. Um, Norman wants to keep it at 68. No, that's too cold. I agree. Uh, I told him it was too cold. We compromised on seventy, but it's still
1: freaking it's cold. cold. But it's probably not cold up in his office.
0: Don't sympathize with him. I'm
1: just saying, if he's in his office, it's probably warm up there. It is. It's cold right here.
0: I know you're bundled up right now. Are I am. You're wearing long sleeves. <laughs> I
1: am. I've got goosebumps.
0: No pants. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy was like, you know, you think about how brutal this crime was. Like yeah. it was terrible. Yeah. And Daniel was just like. Robert just didn't seem like the guy. He was, like, so cooperative, mm-hmm. so nice. He didn't have zero criminal record, but, like, the only thing on his record was when he was a teenager, he'd been caught shoplifting, which is, like, you don't go from shoplifting, shoplifting to, to...
1: biting a woman to death. Right. Which, actually, I'm not insinuating that she was bit to death, but...
0: She was beaten
1: and, yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole... The
0: whole, yeah. Yeah. So Daniel was like, mm, we don't have enough here. I'm not sure that a jury is going to be convinced right? because I'm not convinced. So Daniel wanted to get a second opinion and Lowell said, sure. Let me recommend a colleague, Dr. Raymond Rawson. Raymond seemed like a great choice. He was well known and respected in this field. So the detectives flew out to Las Vegas to meet with him. Mm -hmm. Raymond came to the hotel room where the detectives were staying He looked at the molds and the x-rays, read over Lowell's findings and said, good enough for me. Really? Five days later, Robert was arrested. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Robert freaked out. Uh, Yeah. He had not done what he was accused of doing. He wrote a letter to the judge saying, your honor, I'm facing life for something I did not commit. He asked for a new lawyer. The lawyer he'd received had only been on the case for two weeks before they went to trial. He just didn't feel good about it. But Judge Janine Geske denied his request. Then, when Robert's defense attorney, Stephen Cohn, made a motion to exclude the bite mark evidence, she denied that, too. She called it a recognized area of science.
1: Wow. So... Which is probably not wrong, but...
0: Well, I mean, the wording there, a recognized area. Right. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess, sure. But the interesting thing about this case is that, like, because of the timing at this time, a judge didn't... A judge wasn't supposed to weigh in on whether whether this evidence was respected in the scientific community, whether it was any good. It was just... I believe the standard was like, would it be helpful mm-hmm. to a jury? And right. sure, it'll be helpful. Of course. But what a stupid standard.
1: Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's no. not what this should, this should, wow, what the decision should be. Right. Yeah. If, if the helpful,
0: <laughs> if the helpfulness could make them go in the wrong way, then that's not helpful at exactly. all. Exactly. Um, and that didn't change until I want to say, shoot. Why didn't I write this down? She didn't put it in her
1: notes. <laughs> Everybody drink.
2: <laughs> I want to say
0: it was either 2003 or 1993. It's I know. A 10-year range. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when the Supreme Court actually weighed in on this and they were like, oh, uh, no, the science has to be actual science. But even then, they talked about it in the documentary, even though we have this nice language that sounds really reassuring, yeah. it's still not yeah. where it needs to be. Yep. Anyway, how dare you make fun of me for not putting things in my notes. I'm just saying. Ever since that person pointed that out, <laughs> I can't not hear it. I say it like three times an episode. <laughs> you think I didn't write anything down. Right. <laughs> Lowell took the stand as an expert witness for the prosecution. And damn, was he compelling. He had all these great credentials. He spoke well. He seemed very certain. He said the bite marks would have to have been made. By Robert Lee Stinson. Mm -hmm. Then the other dentist, Raymond Rawson, took the stand and he was equally certain. He said there was no question that this was a match to a reasonable scientific certainty. Hmm. The defense did try to get their own expert witness, but they hit a snag. The guy they wanted as their expert witness looked at the evidence and sided with the prosecution. Wow. Another source that I read said that Robert's defense attorney also had trouble getting a good expert witness because before the trial, Dr. Lowell Johnson went to this big odontological conference and presented his analysis about this case. So all of a sudden, all of these people who could have been experts yeah, every had been tainted.
1: Od- odontologist <laughs> knows all of this information now. Right. Yeah, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. You can't deliver a a seminar on a case that's ongoing. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I would think that would be seen
0: as very unethical. Yes. Evidently not. To take a step back, over the years, it became clear that bite mark analysis is really, really tough Mm -hmm. and not exact it's tough to match a person's teeth to a bite because you have to take in so many different factors. I was say the
1: variables would be huge. Exactly.
0: So the angle of the bite, the force. Um sometimes teeth can look like they're missing when they're not, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, and I would even say like the temperature of the skin that's being bitten would be a huge one.
0: Thank you for saying that because I had something in there and I was like, I, I don't know how to say this without yeah. seeming weird, but like, yeah, a person's skin. Yeah. And maybe when the body is discovered, all of that, I feel like, could have an impact. Yes. But in this trial, the jury didn't get a sense of how inexact bite mark Mm -hmm. analysis really is. And that was apparently fine. Oh, I did write this down because back then the only requirement for expert testimony was that it be relevant and helpful to the jury. Wow. It wasn't until a Supreme Court decision in 1993, Brandy.
1: That was one of the years you mentioned. It was one of the years
0: (laughs) that we have the new standard we have now, that expert testimony has to come from established science and that the science has to have a method for testing. Mm. Hey, I didn't do too bad, right? You
1: got it. You nailed it.
0: Well, with the exception of the year-ish. Fudging. Fudging it all up.
1: You were 50% correct. Thank you.
0: What's the standard we aim for here? Just helpful and relevant to the listeners, That's right? That's right.
1: No scientific 30, basis. Here. 38% accuracy is really all we're aiming
0: and for. And we hit that 60% of the time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, in his testimony, Lowell told the jury that the work he'd done had no margin for error. What? Okay, this is what drives me crazy. Cuz they one of the things they always say is like, well, you know, it's up to the jury to decide how much weight they're going to give an expert's testimony. And right. it's like, well, okay, but if someone comes up and they say, "Here are all of my impressive credentials." Yeah,
1: exactly. And
0: the evidence is allowed into a court of law. Why would I assume that they were full of shit? No, you wouldn't.
1: It, that's exactly it. You would not.
0: Especially if there's two of them mm-hmm. and no expert witness for the defense. Yeah.
1: What am I supposed
0: to think as a juror? Yep, exactly. Then Robert took the stand in his own defense. He told the jury that on the night of the murder, he'd been at a party and he'd stayed there until 1230 at night. Then went home. Then he went to the store with a friend.
1: What? He never said that before. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Okay. He walked behind his house. As he walked, he heard footsteps and someone saying, shh, shh, in the alley.
1: What?
0: So, yeah, um, that's not even close to the story that he told police initially. So the no. prosecution obviously jumps up. Yeah. And they're like, uh, hey, uh, you initially told police that you went to a party, got home, fell asleep you didn't tell police that you went to the store
1: yeah or or that that anybody was in the alley shushing
0: anyone and like robert just kind of squirmed through this Mm. he said something i can't remember what it was but the prosecution had made their point yeah robert had changed his story yep robert was a liar
1: yep (sighs) oh bad bad move robert
0: why do you think he did that? Because, I mean, obviously, I think it's obvious to everyone now, he did not do this crime. Yeah,
1: I think he thought that if he could present yeah, another suspect, it would probably yeah. help him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was, what, 20 years old? Yeah. He didn't have confidence in his defense attorney. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, right. And he was
0: just like, well, what can I say now? Yep. Ugh. After just three days at trial... Both sides gave their closing arguments. The prosecution talked about the bite marks. The defense talked about how police hadn't thoroughly investigated this case. Yeah, They'd found another suspect a block or two away from the crime scene, but they didn't test his teeth. He's a suspect. The jury went into deliberation. They came out two hours later and they found him guilty. Guilty. Yeah.
1: Of of course they did. First degree
0: murder. Yeah. Yeah. He received life in prison. Oh, my gosh. But how can you blame
1: them, though? Oh, right. No, exactly. They had but no idea. Now tell us the great part where he's exonerated and all of that.
0: Don't make that face. You mean my beautiful, sexy face? <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only face I can make, Brandy. Some people have resting bitch face. You have sexy beautiful resting,
1: face. Resting sexy resting, face. Resting sexy beautiful face. No,
0: I definitely have RBF. How oh, do God. not have RBF. Well, you have slurping that Diet Coke, swishing that around. Gosh. Yeah, you have a very pleasant face. Thank you. Pleasant resting face. Oh, God. Oh, but no, it's not a compliment because that's why weirdos... It's why
1: weirdos talk to me.
0: Yeah, they're like, oh, for the first time in my life, a woman is looking at me. <laughs> a woman is
1: looking at me and she doesn't look disgusted. She must want to talk to me. No, I promise I don't, buddy. She probably wants to get in my car right now. <laughs> I definitely do not. And I'm not going to follow you anywhere either.
0: How many times have you been asked to get in someone's car?
1: Uh, I don't know that I've been asked to get in someone's car. I definitely, like, I was at the post office once, and this guy, like, from the intersection, mm-hmm. like, motioned to me to, like, stand still. I was in the post office parking lot, <laughs> uh-huh. and then he pulled into the parking lot, and he was, like, I had already, like, gotten in my car, and I was piecing out of there. Why
0: Why didn't you
1: obediently stand no! still for this and man? and so then he follows me out of the parking lot, and he follows me until he can pull up oh, next to me no, at no. a light. No. And he's, like, roll your window down. Roll your window down. I was, like.
2: No. I'm good. I'm good.
1: Yeah. And he was like, follow me. And he like wanted me to turn and follow him. And I was like, absolutely not. Weirdo. No, dude, I'm good. I was like, you caught a glimpse of me in a parking lot from several yards away. Like, how cute could I possibly be?
0: It turned out that Brandy had a flat tire that day. She was
1: <laughs> <laughs> there was a man
0: with an axe in the back of my car. <laughs> and Brandy's like, quit hitting on me, good Samaritan. <laughs> <laughs> no. Did I tell you? I feel like I've told this on the podcast. Yeah. Where I was driving, when I was driving down the highway and those two weirdos wanted me to stop at a rest stop with them. No thanks. Maybe you haven't told it on the podcast. Okay. Well, if I haven't, I just did. I was driving down the highway by myself. I was like 20 years old. These two guys pulled up in a car next to me. They were honking and waving, trying to get me to pull off at a fucking rest stop. Yeah. No No. thanks, sir. I can rape myself. (laughs) 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 Well, seriously, what woman would pull on? No one. Yeah, no. I mean,
1: unfortunately, probably someone would, but
0: I can't. I cannot imagine. Ooh, rest stops are scary enough as they are. I'm not gonna like voluntarily make some new friends. Okay, so has he been exonerated? I'm sorry, I'm not busy talking
1: about (laughs) that. I'm not busy. I'm not done talking about this yet. Well, I guess I'm done now since yes. I can't talk at all.
0: <laughs> blah blah blah. But Robert didn't get up. Give up or get up, <laughs>
1: get up. or stand up. <laughs> get up, stand up, stand up for his rights? rights. Yes, and he did. He did. Yay, he did. Okay, so he
0: was innocent. So he appealed his case on the basis that the trial shouldn't have allowed that bite mark analysis. Right. But the Wisconsin Court of Appeals disagreed. They were like, no, this bite mark analysis is rock solid. And Dr. Lowell Thomas Johnson did an excellent job. So you're clearly guilty and you're not going anywhere. Why are you dancing right now? I'm solid as a rock in my head now. (laughs) Solid as a rock.
1: Solid as a rock.
0: (laughs) You're making that up.
1: That's a real song. No,
0: it's not. Yes, it is. You sang it to the melody of an Insync song. No,
1: Solid as a Rock. is... You sang it to
0: Baby when the lights no, go out. Is not the same mm-hmm, song. Mm-hmm. Is that Backstreet Boys or Insync? Uh, neither. The love and tenderness. I'll show you what it's all about, mm-hmm. babe. I swear you will succumb so come come to, to me. me. So, baby, come, come to me. To me.
1: I think that's five.
0: Really? Now I gotta look up that. I got so much homework to do. You're right, five. five. Boom! Killed it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Brandy, you're amazing. You're amazing. Are you guys talking about five? Yes, Yes! we are! Do you
2: know five?
0: Norman, get down here. How the hell do you know about five?
1: Well. Because Disney Channel would air the Five Bewitched concert all the time. Oh, Bewitched! Remember Bewitched? C'est la vie. Yes. Yep. They had a say they had, had will, a live concert say at. Uh, say you'll do what I don't Oh, sorry. Go ahead. They had a live concert at Disney World, and Disney Channel aired it all the time.
0: Ooh. So, were you just sitting up in your office listening, listening to a favorite? Podcast? Yeah, I heard you guys singing. <laughs> do you want to give us an endorsement right now? No. Wait,
1: what? <laughs> Get back here! Get back here! Say we're the best podcast! You're the Gaming Historian's favorite podcast! Wow. Wow! wow. You guys, he said it. You just couldn't hear it. Yeah, he just got really shy the about it. he loves rock it. Rock steady. And we begin to rock. Steady. Steady rocking all night long. Okay. You've never heard that song? No, I'm sorry. Okay. This
0: is the second time today. Like, Norman brought up a song this morning. What song? That song. That oh, that. Right. That's right. That, uh, insensitive or something. Jan Arden. Yeah, I swear to you, I had never heard that song. But
1: yeah, he's saying it, and I can get like the, the chorus of it, but I didn't remember any of the verse.
0: Okay, that's saying yeah. something. Um, this episode is a mess, I, and yes. I blame you. <clears throat>
1: I'm sorry, because I danced to a song?
0: Yes. you Because you do your creepy, like, silent...
1: What was that? We were listening to that thing before the episode, Mm -hmm. and so my computer was Uh unmuted. I apologize. How dare you. I won't let it happen again, boss. (laughs) Okay, so he stands up. He gets up. He stands up. He stands
0: up up for his his rights. rights. Uh Uh-huh. And the Wisconsin Court of Appeals was like, you should give up the fight. Yeah. Because they turned him down. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... In 2003, he'd been in prison for 18 years, Ugh. still innocent, Ugh. still stuck. And that's when he reached out to the Wisconsin Innocence Project.
1: Yay. Everybody should support the Innocence Project.
0: No kidding.
1: Oh, my gosh. They do amazing things. They really
0: do. Yeah. They took the case. They got the evidence that had been used against Robert out of storage, and they sent it to four forensic odontologists. Mm-hmm. So that panel of experts looked everything over, and they concluded unanimously that doctors Lowell Thomas Johnson and Raymond Rawson had been wrong, <gasps> and they'd actually made a series of errors during their examinations. Oh my gosh. So a lot of the things that Lowell did in front of the jury, like, he held this dental model next to a bite mark impression, and, like, he would... I wish we had video, but he'd like clamp the, clamp the fake teeth onto it and yeah. show like, Hey, here's how it fits. But it turns out you can do that with almost any dental mold and any dental impression. And it's going wow. to look close look enough. Close enough, yeah, especially that makes if sense. you're an expert saying, look how that fits. People are going to be like, yeah, yeah he's, he's saying it fits no and good. he's an expert.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Who am I to judge? Yeah.
1: I'm no odontologist. I think that's the fourth time I've said that on this episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad because people are so confused. <laughs> Um, But this new panel of dentists didn't just say that the other dentists had been wrong. They were able to say that based on Robert's teeth it could not have been couldn't him.
1: couldn't possibly have been him.
0: The people wow. at the Innocence Project talked to the prosecutors and the prosecutors went and talked to Lowell and Lowell was like, nope, they're wrong. I'm it's right. Him. Of and course the, he says that. I see, It drives me crazy, though, the, of course he says it. Because, holy shit, I mean. Yeah, if you're fucking uh, wrong, you
1: should admit you're wrong. Yes. he's obviously not going to do that. That's so upsetting to me, though. Yes. And I guess. This poor man's been in prison for 18 years at this point. Yeah. Has he been exonerated? I
0: can't handle it. Continue. So the prosecution was like, okay, Lowell, we trust you. So they were like, sorry, Robert stays in prison. Ugh. Do you remember that one time? <laughs> Sorry, this is totally off topic, but on the topic of the name Robert. Uh-huh. We were at like a church lock-in together one time. Okay, yes, I recall. And we were playing a game in a group, big group of people, and I had forgotten this guy's name we were playing with. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to write down everyone's name to keep score, and I thought I'd be slick, and I was like, oh, how do you spell your name? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like, and he goes... R O B.
1: Hey, remind me how you spell your name. Oh, Rob. Thank you. I'm not from this country. <laughs> okay. Um. Um. So occasionally we'll do. So when we check people in at the salon, uh, yeah, like either to tan or whatever, they'll give us their names, and like I'll do that occasionally. And it it bites you in the ass sometimes. Like, I'll be like, oh, remind me how to spell your last name? Oh, oh, S M I T H. Okay, so it's the standard. I just wasn't sure. I didn't know if there was a
0: silent E at the end of it. But I feel like that has to work in your favor more often because people feel like, oh, they know me. Yes, yeah, more
1: often than not works in your favor until, yeah, you get one that you're like. Until you get a Smith. Okay, great. Yes, I was testing you, really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the Innocence Project was like, well, shit, mm-hmm. what else can we do? So they looked at all the other pieces of evidence and they found that the shirt and bra that Ione had been wearing that day had DNA on it. And the DNA did not match. Right. <gasps> right. So in 2008, oh, your face, the team entered the mysterious DNA profile into a Wisconsin DNA database. And it's a match? But they didn't get any matches. Oh, no. But still, Robert, Robert's good. It's not Robert. It's not Robert. And finally, after 23 years in prison, the prosecution agreed that they'd had the wrong guy. Robert Lee Stinson was free. Oh,
1: Good for Robbie.
0: He walked out of prison, gave his sister a really big hug. This is going to sound weird. Their hug made me cry. I watched a video of it, and it was just a really, really long hug. Um, In an interview, he said, I'm finally out, and I'm going to enjoy my life Oh, my
1: gosh. Did he get a bunch of money?
0: We'll get to that. Oh, no. (laughs) So immediately afterward, he and his family and his lawyers drove straight to Applebee's. And uh, reporters stood outside the restaurant wanting to ask him questions, but he was like, I'm hungry. (laughs) So he went in. He went inside, ordered a strawberry iced tea and two plates of fried shrimp. I felt I had to put that in just because like the the picture of him with like these two plates of shrimp, like it's just like, oh God, this poor man. He went away when he was 20 years old. Oh
1: my god,
0: Can you imagine? No,
1: I can't fucking imagine. It's like, it's terrifying to hear yeah. about people who went go away for years at a time for crimes they did not commit.
0: Yes. The year that Robert was released from prison, a study came out that shat all over bite mark yeah. analysis. So I'm going to read some of it. Okay. it. says, although the majority of so forensic... 250
1: like pages, single space.
0: <laughs> 254 pages. Everybody just hang tight, okay? If you think I'm just going to pick out the important parts, you're dead wrong. Although the majority of forensic odontologists, which Brandy is not one of, are satisfied that bite marks can demonstrate sufficient detail for positive ID, no scientific studies support this assessment and no large population studies have been conducted. Wow. In numerous instances, experts diverge widely in their evaluations of the same bite mark evidence, mm-hmm. which has led to questioning of the value and scientific object- objectivity of such evidence. In yep. other words, this is not science. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Then, in 2010, after Robert had been out of prison for a year, Investigators found the man whose DNA matched the DNA on the sweater. It was Moses Price Jr. Okay, this guy scares the shit out of me. Okay, so he'd never been a suspect in her Uh murder. And in fact, around the time Robert was arrested, Moses pled guilty to two armed robbery charges. He had also been accused of rape, but my understanding is that because he pled guilty to those two other they charges, they were the... like, we'll pretend you didn't do that, Ooh. which is great. Yeah. Um, and also, don't worry, he was also a known murderer. He killed a guy and set the man's house on fire.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. Once police had the DNA match, they interviewed Moses, and he confessed. He said he'd been drinking that night, saw her, blacked out. Next thing he knew, he was on top of her.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: The detective was like, you know someone went to prison for this for 23 years. Yeah. And Moses was just like, oh, no, my uh, bad. Too bad. He, he did this thing of like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. If I'd had any idea. Bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Bullshit. Exactly. And I do not buy that you didn't know yeah. that someone went to prison for no. that.
1: No, when you commit a murder, you keep tabs on it. To... We've, we've seen all the movies. They all have scrapbooks with all the newspaper clippings. Hey, I am constantly checking up on that murder I committed a few years ago <laughs> just to see if they've put any pieces together yet. They're tracking down the I'm laugher right now. So far. <laughs> uh, for the record, I've committed no murders. <clears throat> That's exactly what a murderer would say. (laughs) But
0: what about Robert? As I said, the crime took place when he was 20 years old. He'd been in prison for 23 years for a crime he didn't commit. He had nothing to show for the time that he'd been locked up. So he asked the state for compensation. Mm -hmm. So... Cue the big eye roll from me here. Yeah, Wisconsin limits compensation for wrongfully convicted people to just five thousand dollars per year. Hold on, five thousand. It, it gets worse. Five thousand per year, or twenty-five grand total. What? Yeah, yeah. That's what your time is worth.
1: That's some bullshit. Yeah. Can he sue the state? So okay,
0: but there was a loophole in this where the board can ask lawmakers to approve more than the standard amount. So Robert asked for $115,000. That's all he
1: asked for? Millions, buddy. Go for
0: millions. I know. It was only five grand per year. I think it was like, if we're going to get anything, it's going to be this low amount. And he told everyone all he wanted was to be able to buy a car and for himself to be able to go to school for a criminal justice degree. That's all he wanted.
1: Gosh.
0: Eventually, they did award him that amount. I read another article that said that he got less than that, but oh, anyway.
1: I can't handle that. Let's go with the f- this version.
0: But everyone with half a brain knew that Robert deserved more. Yes. So he filed a lawsuit saying that he'd had an unfair trial. Yes. True. Yes. Initially, he sought $1 million per year of incarceration. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like, sure, start sure. with that. Yeah, shoot for the moon, buddy. You'll uh, land among the stars. Brandy made that up just now <laughs> and it is
1: beautiful.
0: But his case got delayed and delayed and delayed and Brandy, are you ready to be so pissed off at no, me right now? Did he
1: die? No, oh, no, no, no. Okay. Oh, <laughs> no,
0: um actually I believe in one of the articles he read, I don't know if they're still together, but after he got out of prison, his high school sweetheart reached out to him and they got engaged. Oh. But anyway, the, case, the the point is, this has been delayed for nine years.
1: You, this isn't finished.
0: It's you, it, fucking assholes. It's, it's slated to go to trial in June of two thousand nineteen. What is the matter with you, Kristen? <laughs> By the time I got to that point, I'd already written everything. I'm so sorry, you guys. Brandy looks like a puddle right now. I'm sorry. What is the matter with you? I tried looking. I couldn't find anything on it because obviously, it's now that we're recording this, it's May.
1: Yeah. It's May of 2019. Yeah. It's like the last three days of May 2019. It sure is. (laughs) Holy shit. Uh, So we'll have to follow up on that Um, one. Will we? No. Kristen never will. You will. I will. That's right. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Everything around here.
0: (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Missy. (laughs) I believe I edit the episodes.
1: You do. Make you quieter and so work on these episodes. <laughs> you do a ton of work.
0: Who do you think takes out all of your ums and all of my <laughs> I make the most disgusting sounds. <sighs> they get in, but trust me, folks, I take out like nine out
1: of ten. Nine out of ten.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? I'm so excited! Oh, oh my god, I almost said something terrible. I'm so excited for assassination. <laughs> yes, great. I didn't mean that. I just mean like I vaguely know this story, but I'm so yes. so excited. To so hear about it.
1: I uh, just kind of stumbled across this case because there's a really good article about it on uh, for the Crime Library, obviously, oh. and then also on, on Famous, Famous Trials, Trials. R2, like my favorite source and your favorite source. Yes. So. Um, And this comes entirely from those two sources. Okay. It's like a dash of Wikipedia. (laughs) Just just a sprinkling
0: over the top. Very good.
1: Um, Okay. So it is March 30th, 1981. Ronald Reagan is in his first term as president. And we're in Washington, D.C. at the Hilton Hotel. Reagan was there speaking to a group of about 3,500 union delegates. He did his speech. Um, he was well, really well known for his speeches. I guess he was called the Great Communicator. Well, he was a former movie star. Absolutely, yeah. He was very
0: charming, very engaging, um, and so. And anyone who has any TV experience is obviously going to be a great speaker, <laughs> as we've come to find out.
1: <laughs> yeah, it turns out that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he finishes his speech. And then surrounded by his aides and his secret service, he walked out of the ballroom through the lobby of the Hilton and walked through the door to his waiting limousine. Um, He was waving at the crowd of people who were outside. There were reporters and onlookers when all of a sudden a young man went into a shooter's crouch, both hands on a handgun. Um, A shooter's crouch is that like? It's like yeah, like yeah. Okay, damn. I, yeah. I got you. Yeah, um, and the man fired. He got off six shots in three seconds. Wow! Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy jumped in in front of the president. But he caught a bullet in the stomach and fell to the ground. Oh. Um, another agent, Jerry Parr, grabbed Ronald Reagan and pushed him down behind, like, the open rear door of the limousine. Uh-huh. Just before a bullet smashed into the window. Whoa. And the windows are bulletproof. Uh-huh. Like, the bullet, like, ricocheted off the window, like, just as this Secret Service agent pushed Holy Ronald shit. Reagan down behind the door. How many—okay, this is probably something you don't know.
0: How many secret service agents surround the president? I don't a, know. Okay, probably something we shouldn't know, right? Right, yeah, okay. I think you're not supposed
1: to know. It's four. Yeah, because then you know, if you take out four, he's unguarded. hmm Yeah, that's why maybe it's a secret. <coughs> the sixth and final bullet hit Reagan. It struck him in the armpit and then tunneled into <gasps> his chest. Ooh. The president felt this sharp pain in his body, but he thought it was from the secret service agent pushing him down. Right, right. He looked at him and he made a joke. He said, you son of a bitch, you broke my (laughs) rib. And by this time they had gotten up and into the limousine and they sped away from the scene. Sure, sure. There's a book called On Being Mad or Merely Angry by James W. Clark. And James W. Clark describes the scene—the scene, the scene um, of the shooting—like this: He said, "It was bedlam amid the hysterical screams of bystanders, wailing sirens, and shouts of Secret Service agents and police attempting to gain control of the situation. Tim McCarthy lay doubled up on the sidewalk, hands clutching the bullet wound in his stomach. A few feet away, police officer Tom Delahanty." writhed in agony from a neck wound. Next to him lay presidential press secretary Jim Brady, the first to fall. His face flattened against the sidewalk, arms twitching at his sides, oh. blood trickling into a storm grate from a pea-sized bullet hole <gasps> over his left eye.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: So six bullets had been shot and four oh. people were wounded. One of the Secret Service aides Agents was able to overpower the shooter. They wrestled him to the ground, and he made no attempt to flee. Okay, they took him into custody immediately. Well, yeah, I would think you know at that point. Oh yeah, what are you going to do? Um, the reports of the incident were reassuring at first, um, especially concerning President Reagan. He underwent a successful operation and was expected to fully recover. Mm-hmm. And then um of the others that were shot Tom Delahanty and Tim McCarthy were expected to survive but things were not as good for Jim Brady the one who was shot above the eye these bullets were called exploding devastator bullets oh, which meant that like, like the tip of the bullet exploded upon impact and it had hit him in his brain yeah it was It was touch and go if he was going to survive at all. Finally, it was announced that he would live, but he would be permanently impaired. He was paralyzed for the rest of his life on one half of his body and spent the rest of his life confined to a wheelchair. That
0: poor man.
1: So news of this shooting, you know, goes out, this assassination attempt, and all of the attention is focused on the shooter. Who would do this? And more importantly, why? So the shooter was identified as John Warnick Hinckley Jr. It pretty quickly they found out that there was no political motivation whatsoever. That is the weirdest thing to me. Instead, he was trying to impress a woman. Uh huh. Jody Foster. Yes. <laughs> this is the one Isn't
0: part that I know. Fucking nuts. Well, I mean, it just shows. Like, I mean, we're we're like trying to find logic in this, but yeah. you know he.
1: Yeah, he was deeply troubled. Clearly, we're about to find out how deeply troubled he was. But was Jodie Foster impressed? (laughs) She was not. (laughs) What weird! You'll hear how unimpressed she was later. Women can be so difficult to read. (laughs) So, John Warnock Kinkley Jr. was born in Oklahoma in May of 1955, um, May 29th of 1955. So that is today. Oh, gross! Yes, happy birthday! Happy birthday? Question mark. Um, He was the youngest of three children to John Hinckley Sr., who they called Jack, and uh, his wife, Joanne Moore Hinckley. Jack was a businessman and later became chairman and president of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. And then Joanne was a homemaker. So this was a a pretty, they were a well-to-do family. Mm -hmm. The Hinckley children were very popular when they were growing up. And John was kind of seen as, like, the shy one in the family, but he still seemed like a normal kid overall. He wasn't a loner, but he didn't have a ton of friends. He didn't have really any close friends. but Mm -hmm. um, And then he wasn't, like, made fun of or anything. He just was kind of isolated. Okay. But when he was with other kids, he was liked. He was voted, like, the best basketball player in elementary school. So... You know, he did all right. As I mentioned, the family was affluent, but not extremely wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack worked a lot to provide for the family, which meant that it was often just his wife at home taking care of the kids. And it was kind of a an aff- affectionless home. So later on, Jack would say that he gave his son a hug after he was charged with the assassination attempt. And that it was the first time he could remember hugging him since he was a small child. What the... And at the time of the assassination attempt, John was 25.
0: Okay, I do not understand this at all. Although that was in parenting books for a while. That you shouldn't be affectionate with your child, which is just insane to me. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So the family moved several times in John's childhood as part of Jack's job. Like, he had Mm -hmm. to relocate to different areas, um where his company was headquartered or whatever. When he was in the sixth grade, the family moved to Dallas. um, and they had a really nice house. They had a swimming pool and a like the big thing was that they had this like Coke vending machine in their house which was seen as a whole. Oh that would make you the coolest. Can you imagine? Yeah. So again, like John seemed very well liked by his classmates. He was active in an active participant in school activities. He was actually so popular at this point that he was elected president of his seventh grade class and then later his ninth grade class. Wow. Yeah. He also was the manager of the school football team. And during junior high, so during the same time when he was living in Dallas, he became really interested in music. He started playing the guitar. But this is kind of where his shyness, Uh he wouldn't kick in. He wouldn't play in front of anyone. Okay. And he became very interested in music. It wasn't until um, high school that John started to exhibit what some might call like signs of trouble. Mm-hmm. And it again, it wasn't that like anything super weird was going on. In fact, like John's parents, friends always commented on how lucky they were because they're because John wasn't drinking. He wasn't taking drugs. He wasn't running around with a, like a bad crowd, he wasn't like having sex with a bunch of girls. He, he wasn't doing anything actually. He'd, like, completely withdrawn by this point. Okay. And so everybody else is like, oh, my gosh, how lucky you are that you guys have such a well-behaved kid. When instead, like, he, this is when he start exhibit, started exhibiting Right, signs He of, was so isolated. Mm-hmm, he completely withdrew. Um, he lost interest in sports. He stopped participating in any athletic activities. He didn't date at all. He spent hours in his room just, like, strumming his guitar and listening to music. And it became super... Obsessed with the Beatles. (laughs) He, like, super obsessed. He collected all kinds of memorabilia and books about the Beatles and everything. Um, And and this
0: would have been... Would this have been a little late to be obsessed with the Beatles? Or was this, like, right on time? 70s.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, not, like, real early in the Beatles, but... Yeah, Yeah, still. So all in all, he's not getting into trouble. He's just not doing anything. And mm-hmm. this actually really started to bother Jack. Jack hated it. He saw his son as, like, lazy and lethargic. And, like, it was really... He was... Jack was the kind of guy who was always, like, working and always right completing tasks and getting stuff done. And so the fact that his son was not like that became, like, a real sticking point for him. Yeah. But they didn't see this as any kind of sign of a bigger issue. It was just, like, to them, just another, like... Introver- introverted teenager who didn't want to talk to his parents.
0: Well, and I wonder if you know so many people blame stuff on generational yeah. things. I wonder if they were like
1: this generation,
0: yeah. you know, they're just lazy,
1: la la Absolutely. la. Absolutely.
0: When clearly, I mean,
1: it sounds like he was depressed, right? Right. So that's kind of where this like the the question starts. Yeah. Was he depressed, and that led to him withdrawing and doing all this stuff, or? did he start to withdraw and because of that became depressed. Either way, the end result is that he was isolated and definitely suffering from depression. Sure. So in 1973, so yeah, this was going on. He had our John, it was like the year after John had graduated from high school. The family moved again to Evergreen, Colorado this time, which is a pretty upscale suburb of Denver and Jack's business had, opened a new headquarters there and so they relocated and john decided he wasn't going to go he was going to go to lubbock texas and go to college instead
2: okay
1: he wanted to stay in texas he wasn't going to go to colorado so he enrolled at texas tech um how old was he at this point He had like 18 probably. Okay, okay. Because he had just graduated from high school. So he attended Texas Tech for a year and then he ended up like taking a year off and going and living with his sister who lived in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And then he decided he was going to go back to Texas Tech. But then the worst happened for John. The Beatles broke up? Nope. What happened? He was assigned a black roommate. (laughs) Are you serious? I'm serious. This kind of sent him on a spiral. His family said that bigotry was never anything in the home. His sisters said that, like, that was never anything that the family um, believed in. Like, they had friends who were African-American. Oh, that's what all racist people say. definitely. Okay. Definitely. But John very quickly disliked his roommate, and that led to a, a dislike of blacks in general he began reading pretty much exclusively literature by white supremacists. oh groups. god
0: oh yeah. god well this poor roommate can you imagine uh, no i can't
1: imagine um side note yeah
0: so gosh what year did my dad go to college i mean it would have been in the 70s yeah but he said that on his application mm-hmm. they asked you if you were okay having a black oh, that's roommate
1: crazy isn't that insane that's insane
0: yeah. So, which can you imagine if you
1: were black and you were filling that out? You're like, you'd be like, you'd be well, like, I
2: guess well, so. I guess I'm alright <laughs> with it.
1: <laughs> no, I mean that's it's just ridiculous to me. Also, a tad racist. Just smid, just a smidgen. <laughs> I suspect there's racism. Suspect there might be racism in play here. <laughs> Um, by 1976, John had quit college, and he decided he was going to become a songwriter, naturally. So he wanted to become a big racist big songwriter. Racist songwriter. <laughs> Great. So he moved to California. The KKK yo, can't write their su- own where songs. it's super conservative. <laughs> yeah, why would to California? <laughs>
0: <laughs> why not some like, conservative southern state? Like
1: Nashville? I All mean, right. I would that would be the more conservative choice, right? Then. Uh, I should say so. Yeah. So, no, he moves to California. He's going to break into music. And then something that would greatly form the rest of John's life happened. He saw... The Silence of the Lambs? Nope. All my guesses have been wrong. Taxi Driver. Oh. The um, Martin Scorsese movie Mm -hmm. starring Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle. So Travis Bickle is a veteran who drives a cab in New York City, and he is suffering from chronic insomnia in that film. The job of driving a taxi at night gives him a view of the city that fills him with disgust and loathing. He becomes infatuated with a lovely blonde named Betsy, who was played by Sybil Shepard. And Betsy seems to epitomize everything pure and wholesome. So Bickle tries to woo her, and he invites her to an X-rated movie
0: Um,
1: in order to woo her. (laughs) I bet she's never seen sex before. Yes. So she's completely turned off by this and refuses to ever see him again. And so he is, like, thrown down this loneliness spiral because it totally... Didn't happen how he wanted it to. So interesting, the script for Taxi Driver was actually partially inspired by the story of Arthur Bremer, who attempted to assassinate governor and presidential candidate George Wallace. And this assassination attempt after actually left Wallace uh, disabled. Oh. But like the character Bickle, Bremer had offended and lost this young woman that he was courting when he showed her pornography. What? Well, who thinks that that's a good idea? These guys are so dumb and weird. Yeah. So in this movie, in the movie Text Driver*, I'm assuming. I'm telling you this because I'm assuming you've never seen it. How dare you? You've never seen it, Robert De Niro, like once ever. What's the famous line? You Go ahead, make know. my day. No. <laughs> you had me in hello. No. Life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> so in the movie, after. Um, after Bickle's character is rejected by Betsy, he makes friends with Iris, who is this 12-year-old prostitute played by Jodie Foster. Oh. Bickle hates that she is on the streets and it becomes like his mission to save her. Mm-hmm. So the the famous line from this is, you talking to me? Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's like a really iconic scene in the movie because it shows that he's like completely spiraled out of reality and uh-huh. into delusion in this film. Okay. Um, so anyway, so John goes to California. This movie comes out. It's like 1976. He sees it 15 times. My goodness. And is completely obsessed with it. And Jodie Foster. A 12-year-old Jodie Foster. yes. Um, right. and it's, uh, it's believed that maybe the obsession is kind of linked in some mommy issues that he might've had because his mom's name was Joanne and she was, um, her friends all called her Jody. That seems like a bit of a stretch. I, I agree. But, um, after the shooting, her friends stopped, calling her Jody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet they did.
1: That's not funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess. The, oh, that would be a weird thing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, So he's off in California. His family's in Colorado. He calls home one day and tells them he's got great news. He's dating this woman named Lynn Collins. She's a young actress from an affluent family. And they had met when she was on a trip to California, which had been a graduation gift from her parents. Only later, after the shooting took place, would... John's family learn that That she was made up was a figment of his imagination. She was completely made up and she was modeled on Betsy from Taxi Driver. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's living in California. He's telling his parents he's got this girlfriend. He's also telling them that he cut a demo and is, uh, about to get an agent and all of this stuff. Only, also, none of that's happening. He is having no success there. And so he ends up moving. In September of 76, he moves to Colorado to move with his parents because he just can't. He's not surviving in California. Mm -hmm. He got a job as a bus boy. He worked there for a few months. And then he was like, nope, I want to go back to California. This sucks. (laughs) And so he decided to move back to California in 1977. And again didn't work out so he moved back to Texas Tech to try and make that work and so he decided to change his major from business administration to English
0: oh that's good there's so much you can do with an English degree
1: (laughs) just ask me (laughs) Um, so he started living in like an off campus apartment and I hope his roommates were just white as snow (laughs) white as snow (laughs) And he, like, really started deteriorating at this point. He started going to, like, the Texas Tech Health Clinic, Mm -hmm. like, almost daily, complaining of different ailments. He had problems with his eyes, with his throat, with his ears, and a persistent case of lightheadedness. Like, he always felt like there was something wrong. He didn't have any friends. Hmm. He was not doing well. And so he began to really fantasize about Taxi Driver and what his life would be like if that was him or if Jodie Foster was in his life. And so he started collecting guns because that's oh. what Travis Bickle did in Taxi Driver. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then he founded an organization. It's an organization, Kristen. <laughs> I don't <laughs> so, know why your face looks like that. I'm so alarmed.
2: Well...
0: Uh, Great, an unstable man with a ton of guns creates an organization. Yes. What was it? It was
1: called American Front, and it was an alternative to the minority kissing Republican and Democratic parties. The, the minority kissing? kissing? That's correct. <laughs> oh, what? Uh, this new political party was <laughs> for the proud white conservative oh, who would God. rather wear coats and ties instead of swastikas and sheets. Oh shit. <laughs> We're bad, but we're not that bad. That was their slogan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Um, He called himself the party's national director. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess if you started. And he grew a large following with members from different states. Ew. Except he didn't because it was all made up. Oh okay. Yes, uh, I, I everything about the group was completely fake, including his list of members.
0: Okay, because I just think you know racism can be pretty
1: catchy. Well, yes. So <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been all that shocked if he had been able yeah. to recruit some members. Yeah, but no, I don't think he even attempted to. I think it was all in his head. Okay. Yes. Great. In January of 1980, uh, John suffered this massive anxiety attack. Which led to him like seeking medical help. He went in for like psychiatric evaluation. They he said he was dizzy all the time, but it didn't really lead to anything. They didn't diagnose him with anything at that time, and so instead, he continued working on that firearms collection and he formed another company, a company called List a Lot. It offered its customers a variety of lists. <laughs> what do you? What are you no no <laughs> that's all it's known that's all it says list of what just list <laughs> you want a list of shoes I'll give you a list of shoes <laughs> good shoes bad shoes yeah. just shoes just shoes. Uh, so uh, his business <laughs> how made, quickly did he become a millionaire uh, he made $59 at this business Kristen that is and it shocking. only cost him $57 to do stuff <laughs> like legit those were his, that was his balance sheet
0: Brandy, you own your own business. (laughs) Is that
1: good, bad? It's not good. It's not good. And then in May of 1980, he came across an issue of People. Wait, are you not going to tell me how he got his $59? I have no idea how he got his $59, Kristen. He sold somebody some lists. (laughs) The company was named (laughs) List-a-Lot. Is that all you've got? That's all I know! Fine, fine. Continue. Um, so, he came across this issue of People Magazine in May of 1980 that said that Jodie Foster was attending Yale University. Oh, wow. And so, John started planning his trip to New Haven oh, God. to meet her and rescue her. Oh! Uh-huh. I wasn't aware she was in need of rescue. Yes. Yeah. I bet she wasn't either. Uh, that's also correct. So... He continues seeing doctors. He's got all these weird ailments still. And he ends up back in Colorado because he can't support himself in in Texas off that $59. Mm-hmm. And by September of that year, he told his parents that he had enrolled in a writing course at Yale. And that oh. he needed $3,600 to take it. And so they gave him the money. And he believed that he was heading there to meet Jody and rescue her and that this would be the start of this life that he had always wanted and so he headed to Yale expecting Jody to be super thrilled to see him she she needed him as her knight and savior had he been writing her a bunch of creepy letters so when he got to Yale he started leaving letters and poems in her campus mailbox oh God yeah and then he was able to find her phone number. And he called her twice, in which she answered the phone and gave him kind of like a polite brush off. And one of them, she said, I can't carry on these conversations with people I don't know. It's dangerous. And it's just not done. It's not fair. And it's rude. Oh, God. So he took
0: that to mean the problem is we haven't met. met, Yeah. Yeah. And so he said, he
1: said, well, I'm not dangerous. I promise you that. So he tape recorded these conversations that he had with her. Of course. Yeah. And so, you know, John thought, here are the answers. She needs to meet me, and I have to do something that will impress her. And I know what that thing is. Oh, God. I have to assassinate a president. Oh, my God. And so he started following around Jimmy Carter. Oh. With the plan to shoot him and assassinate him to impress Jodie Foster. Sure. Sure. After he comes up with this plan, he decides he's going to travel to Nashville um, because President Carter was scheduled to make a campaign appearance there. Uh But an airport security device detected handguns in his suitcase. Wow. They confiscated the firearms and John was ordered to pay a $62 fine. And that's it. You're kidding. That's it. That's all that was done. Okay. Yep. So... He moves back to his parents' house, and his parents are now like, okay, something's seriously wrong. Like, there's there's definitely something going on Perhaps with he didn't John. really get that Yale writing yes, course. Yes, and so yeah. they make him go see a psychiatrist. Yeah. And they're, the doctor believed that John had a typical case of social underdevelopment, and that he simply needed to learn to stand on his own two feet. He thought he'd been coddled too much, and that was what was wrong with him. Wow, the boy who'd never been hugged had been coddled too much. Yep. Okay. Yep. So in this meantime, he's still obsessed with Jodie Foster. In fact, he wrote a letter to the FBI that says, there's a plot underway to abduct actress Jodie Foster from Yale University in December or January. No ransom will be asked. She's being taken for romantic reasons. This is no joke. I don't wish to get further involved. Act as you wish. So he sent that to the FBI. And they did nothing with it? They told Jodie Foster about it and the head of her dorm. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Huh.
0: Which I guess, what what do you do? Yeah. I don't know what the appropriate thing to do would be, but like, the head of her dorm? Yeah. What the fuck is that person
1: going to do? Yeah, Exactly. So, a lot of people believe that uh, the psychiatrist that John was seeing, his name was Dr. Hopper, that he ignored a lot of warning signs. Mm-hmm. But, and he probably did. Mm-hmm. But, to be fair, like, John wasn't being honest with him. He wasn't telling him how obsessed he was with Jodie Foster and that he was planning to assassinate a president. Like, he didn't let him in on that part of his life. And so... But people rarely do in it, these cases, true. right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And so... Hopper continued to believe that the only thing wrong with John is that he needed to mature, hmm. that he was too immature. And then in December of 1980, December 8th to be exact, John suffered a major trauma. This is what kind of what you alluded to earlier. Okay. John Lennon was shot, and he okay. took it very badly. He actually rode a train to New York City to attend a vigil. For John Lennon. And when he went home, his parents picked him up at the airport and they said that he looked very disheveled and looked as if he'd been crying for days. Hmm. And he made a comment to his his father. He said, don't make any cracks about John Lennon, Dad. I'm in deep mourning. Hmm. So this like rocked John Hinckley Jr.'s world. But... Something alarming happened as he started like looking into this and examining his feelings about it. He really felt like he identified with Mark David Chapman, John wow. Lennon's killer. killer. Yeah, yeah. And so he went and bought the exact revolver that Mark David Chapman had used to kill John Lennon. Um, he became obsessed with shooting. He -hmm. did a lot of target practice and continued to obsess about Jodie Foster. He was traveling to New Haven regularly just to leave poems and notes in Jodie Foster's mailbox. Gross. And then he decided he was going to go live in New York City for a little bit, like Travis Bickle. Oh yeah, yeah. And he decided that he would seek the company of some young women. And so he ended up losing his virginity to, like, a teenage prostitute. Oh, gosh. And uh, and later said that he enjoyed it very much. Ugh. And then on Valentine's Day of 1981, he took a cab to the Dakota apartment building, which is where John Lennon had been murdered. He said that he intended to kill himself on the spot where John Lennon had been killed. Mm-hmm. But once he got there, he couldn't do it. Hmm. And so he had a final session with his psychiatrist on February twenty seventh, 1981. His, his psychiatrist noted that he seemed um, the, in the worst shape that he'd ever seen him at, at that point. And so he encouraged his parents to take a major step and kick him out of the house <gasps> and tell him he was not allowed to return home. That he needed to fly from the nest. Ooh. And so they did. On March 7th, they told him he was no longer welcome at their house. They gave him a couple thousand dollars and told him to figure it out. And it was... That was it. That was like the thing that likely pushed him over the edge. Well, sure. You've got nothing, nothing else going on. So initially, he intended to go to New Haven. So he went to New Haven. Sure. And he intended to kill himself in front of Jodie Foster. Oh, my God. Or maybe once he got there, he might kill her and then kill himself. He wasn't quite sure. But instead, he took a bus to Washington, D.C. And that's where he saw in a newspaper that President Reagan was scheduled to speak. And so he wrote a letter to Jody Foster and said, I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand. So he never mailed that letter. It was found on him. Yeah. So instead of going to New Haven, he went to... Washington D.C. and at one thirty on March thirtieth, he took a train to the Hilton, where he knew President Reagan was going to be speaking, and he waited for him to exit the hotel. Uh, John caught sight of the president at one forty-five when he came to like a hotel entrance and waved at the crowd, and John Hinckley waved back at waved back at him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at two twenty-five, President Reagan exited the hotel, surrounded by his bodyguards. And Hinckley moved forward toward the president calling, Mr. President, Mr. President. And as President Reagan turned in his direction, John Hinckley Jr. knelt into his marksman position and fired the six shots. He was still clicking the trigger on the emptied gun when the Secret Service agents tackled wow. him to the ground. Oh. And as I mentioned earlier, he made no attempt to flee. So this was a deeply unhinged yeah. mentally ill yeah. person who had sought co- some kind of help yeah and i don't i don't know if you say a mistake was made in his care or what but he was definitely pushed over the edge the
0: psychiatrist clearly didn't see the get the full picture see what was yes yeah yeah This is reminding me of the Rebecca Schaefer assassination. Yes, so much. He was also
1: inspired by the Mm -hmm. Lennon assassination. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there were dozens of witnesses. The shooting itself was captured on videotape. Mm -hmm. So when the trial began, the defense only had one option, and the prosecution knew it. Yeah, insanity. It would be an insanity defense. Mm -hmm. After he was taken into custody, he was put under through extensive psychiatric evaluation. Sure. And when the reports came in, there was no surprise. All of the government psychiatrists concluded that Hinckley was legally sane and that he understood what he had done was wrong. But at the time of his shooting... At the time of the shooting, he was in a psychotic state and legally insane. Mm-hmm. So Hinckley demanded that Jody Foster testify at his trial. And he told his lawyers that if they didn't make every effort to make this happen, he would refuse to cooperate in any way with his own defense. And well, too so, fucking bad. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, his lawyer worked really hard to make it happen, and finally, he arranged. You are kidding me. For Jody Foster to testify in a closed session with only the judge, lawyers, and Hinkley himself present, they would tape record Gross. it, and that no. tape could later be introduced at into evidence at the trial. So when Hinckley received the news that this was going to happen, he reportedly called his parents and said, Mom, Dad, I'll be right there in the same room with her.
0: No. Right? That's that's so creepy and yeah. gross, and he shouldn't be able to just order up Jodie Foster. Right. Yeah. And if if he wants his trial to go down the tubes, too damn bad for
1: him. Yeah. Exactly, right? Ugh, I'm grossed out. It it's disgusting. So on March thirtieth, nineteen eighty two, one year to the day after the shooting, the assassination attempt, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it, mm-hmm. Hinckley was taken to the federal courthouse in Washington for Jodie Foster's testimony. The testimony really upset Hinckley. Because he oh, because he
0: had to find out for the first time that she thought he was a huge creep
1: because he she didn't give him a single glance, mm-hmm. a nod, nothing. And as she completed her testimony without any mention of him or any affection shown his way., mm-hmm. he threw a ballpoint pin at her and yelled, "I'll get you, Foster!" Oh God, yeah he was then like tackled by US marshals and mm-hmm. taken sure. from the room. Jury selection for the Hinkley trial began on April 27th, 1982.
0: Okay, so who doesn't read a newspaper or watch right
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, this is really interesting. So the jury was the jury was made up of seven women and mm-hmm. five men, mm-hmm. 11 African-American people, and one white person. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because at one point, like, during the questioning of, like, would you be able to remain impartial to this and this and this, they had to ask if they could remain impartial to someone who is racist. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Because there's going to be testimony given how he's a racist asshole. Yeah. And they are going to be asked to remain impartial to that Uh uh-huh testimony how do you feel about that i have no idea
0: see i feel like black people would be really good at that well yeah i mean they're probably used to it right yeah that's what i'm saying like i feel like i mean not everybody's gonna be good at that but i i think if someone said yeah honestly i do think i could be impartial yeah i believe them Mm mm-hmm
1: um, so the prosecution started their case um, and they established obvi- obvious that the shooting had occurred and that Hinckley had done the shooting. And the defense did not contest that in mm-hmm. any way. Mm-hmm. The early witnesses that were called included uh, two of the victims, which were the police officer that had been shot, tel- Thomas Delahanty, and then the Secret Service agent, Timothy McCarty. And then a neurosurgeon testified about the brain injury that James Brady had suffered. And then they attempted to show premeditation by introducing that video footage that clearly showed Hinckley in the crowd at at a campaign event for Carter. Okay. So they're like, different president. But yeah, the point was the president it wasn't a political
0: motive. Yes. Okay. Exactly.
1: There were no surprises there. All of that stuff was to be expected. The real trial was said to begin once the prosecution rested Mm. and the defense opened with their insanity case. Sure. Um, They, the defense opened by asking uh, John's mother about his childhood and his letters to home about Texas tech and his imaginary girlfriend and all of that stuff that he, you know, invented completely in his head. Right. In, in the cross examination of his mom, the prosecution attempted to establish that Hinckley couldn't have been that sick or his parents would have known about it. That hmm. either he's not really that ill or there's some some amount of culpability on their part for ignoring it. Wow, i I don't think so. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. And I think it's probably... I mean he wasn't living in their home with them for all that time. I think it's quite probable that they didn't have any idea how ill he had become. Sure, sure. Yeah. His I mean, his psychiatrist didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: I think it's entirely possible for a parent to not understand how bad things have gotten
1: for their child. Yeah, I completely agree. John's dad Jack was called to testify about his decision to cut John off. And what, how that oh. was kind of a tipping point in John's life, and and he said uh, he told the he told the jury about the day when he told him like here's some money you're gonna have to make a life and you're gonna have to figure it out on your own yeah do whatever you want to do and he said looking back I'm sure that's the greatest mistake I've ever made in my life oh that's isn't that rough yeah I mean. And he was doing what he thought he was supposed to do. He was doing what he was instructed to do. I know, by a doctor. By a doctor. Yes. That's so sad. He even, on the stand, attempted to take blame for what had happened. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm the cause of John's tragedy. I forced him out at a time when he simply couldn't cope. I wish to God that I could trade places with him right now. Oh, not just, like, heartbreaking? Yes. Yeah, because... I'm sure he does feel completely responsible. But he was just doing what he had been instructed to do. And he didn't know the full scale of what was going on. No one knew the full scale of what was going on. Question.
0: Yeah. Do you think he really hadn't hugged his child? Or do you think that's something he said to try to get... It could be something
1: he said to get sympathy for John, yeah. Could be.
0: Could be. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I mean, if you felt like that was the only way to save your child from the death penalty, maybe you would say, hey, I was a terrible parent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The next to testify was Dr. Hopper. He testified about his misdiagnosis of John. He said, John was not merely an unmotivated kid who needed behavioral therapy, as he first thought, but he was someone suffering from serious mental illness. Some, some like essay that John wrote, some kind of autobiography that he had written in November of 1980 was introduced into evidence at the trial upon Hopper's request In it, Hinkley wrote of a relationship I had dreamed about that went absolutely nowhere and um, said that his mind was on the breaking point. And Hopper said that he had failed to appreciate the seriousness of the warnings contained in that essay. And he also testified that he knew nothing of Hinkley stalking the president or of his purchase of um, handguns or of his obsession with Jodie Foster I think this
0: would be the scariest thing about being in that profession. 100%. Yeah. Because
1: he also at one point testifies that John had IQ of 113. So he's mm-hmm. on the on the intel- on the intelligent side. That's above mm-hmm. average. Mm-hmm. And so John probably knew enough of what to say to make it seem like he was giving the full view of what was going on with him. Mm-hmm. But he was holding stuff back the entire time. Hmm. I think it's terrifying. Yeah. 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 <sighs> um This is why we stick to podcasts. That's right. <laughs> After the doctor was done testifying, TVs were brought in to the courtroom and the judge told the jury, ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, you will see a videotape rendition of a deposition of the witness, Jody Foster. At this point, like John was sitting at the defense table and he was just kind of like slumped over and not paying attention. He like sat up and like gave his full attention at sure. that time. And on the tape, Foster described Hinckley's first sets of letters as like love letters and the last batch of letters that she got as distressful sounding. Um, And she said in the video that she gave them to the dean of her college. And then on the tape, she read one of the letters. Um, It was dated March 6th, 1981. And it said, "Jody Foster, love, just wait. I will rescue you very soon. Please cooperate. J.W.H., And on the stand, she was asked whether she'd ever seen a message like that before. And Foster replied, yes. In the movie Taxi Driver, the character Travis Bickle sends the the character Iris, her character, Mm -hmm. a rescue letter. That sounds almost identical to that. Next came a series of questions that led to Hinkley standing up and running from the courtroom. You know, what? Like, Mar- U.S. Marshals, like, chased him down and tackled him. And so this is, what, this is what she was asked. Now, with respect to the individual John W. Hinckley, looking at him in this courtroom today, do you recall seeing him in person before today? And Jody said, no. Did you ever respond to his letters? No, I did not. Did you ever invite his approaches? No. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your relationship with John Hinckley? And she said, I don't have any relationship with John Hinckley. And with that, he like jumped up from the table and ran out of the courtroom. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, After the videotape testimony, the defense case continued with... um, like the phone conversations that he had tape recorded and stuff like that and hearing Foster saying the thing about I can't carry on these conversations with people I don't know. Yeah. The defense called two um, psychiatric experts. One testified that he believed that John was suffering from schizophrenia. He saw um, Hinckley as having four major symptoms of mental illness. An incapacity to have an ordinary emotional arousal autistic retreat from reality, depression, including suicidal features, and an inability to work or establish social bounds. Hmm. I think those all make sense. And according to this expert, Hinckley's lack of conviction about his identity led him to snatch like fragments of personality from books and movie characters that he liked or identified with. And so he created this whole persona off of these bits and pieces of people that he felt he identified with. That makes a creepy amount of sense to me. It makes so much sense. Yeah.
0: I, um, I once knew this person in college. He was a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. Dude creeped the shit out of Mm -hmm. me. Um, the the show House was uh-huh. really popular, and this dude was just, like, a normal guy. All of a sudden, he pretended, well, he said he slipped on the ice one day, and he started walking oh, he around with a cane. a cane for, like, months mm-hmm. and months. Yeah. And he developed a uh, really haughty attitude, which is real cute when you're a doctor at the top of your field and not when you work at Radio Shack.
1: Yes.
2: But
1: <laughs> So another, like, defining moment in John's life, according to this um, expert, was he believed the death of John Lennon. Because, because of that. um, Because, because, because. (laughs) Because of that identity issue that he was having where he was pulling bits of other people's identities. He believed that John Lennon was part of him. And he was part John Lennon. Uh And so John Lennon dying, what did that mean for him? Yeah. How could he still exist? Mm-hmm. And so it was a huge part in like this fracturing of his reality.
0: This I think is, that makes total sense. This is fascinating to me. Yes. Yes. This does make sense. Yeah.
1: Yes. Oh. Yeah. So um, there was a, a recording that Hinckley had done on New Year's Eve, and it kind of gave a glimpse into that confusion about John Lennon's death. And this is what he said on this recording. John Lennon is dead. The world is over. Forget it. It's just going to be insanity if I even make it through the first few days. I still regret having to go on with 1981. I don't know why people want to live. John Lennon is dead. I still I still think about Jody all the time. That's all I think about, really. That and John Lennon's death. They were just sort of binded together in my mind. Hmm. This expert, um, his name is Dr. Carpenter. I don't think I've said that. He said that he believed that when Jack Hinckley refused to let John come back home, that that severed John's last link to the real world. There was nothing else holding him in any kind of real life. He yeah. slipped completely into that imaginary life that he had created. Oh. Which... Days later is when he attempted to assassinate the president. Yeah. Um, Carpenter was on the stand for like three days, and he concluded his testimony by saying that Hinckley could appreciate the wrongfulness of his act intellectually. Like intellectually, he knew it was wrong, but he didn't understand that at all emotionally. Mm -hmm. To him... The president and the others he shot were just bit players. He was so focused on achieving a magical unification with Jodie Foster that he didn't see the consequences of his actions for those victims. Mm -hmm. Another expert testified that... Hinckley believed that Travis Bickle was talking directly to him and he began to feel like he was acting out a movie, movie script. So the same thing. He's saying that like he had no grasp on reality. He was living completely in a figment of his imagination. Right. And he said it was highly unlikely that Hinckley was or could be faking an illness because those that do almost always report fake positive signs, like hearing voices or having visions. And Hinckley's signs were all negative, like showing no emotion and, like, jumping in places in his thought. And so he said that, like, to him, that means that this is not, he's not creating this as an argument for insanity. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's really insane. Which i I believe that he i believe it
0: too, yeah, yeah, the
1: defense closed the defense closed their case by showing the jury the movie taxi driver in its entirety. you're kidding me, no what yes. You like know, It's kind of unnecessary. <laughs> I
0: wonder if it was like, huh? the defense attorney was like, oh shit, I didn't prepare anything. Let's wheel know, in the to, movie into know, class. I got in another
1: two hours and 12 minutes I need to fill. You guys, you guys better <laughs> take notes
0: on this because there will be a test.
1: So the prosecution offered a, a bit of a rebuttal to that psychiatric What movie evidence. did they show? <laughs> so they um, tried to say that the diagnosis of schizophrenia was wrong. That Hinckley, in fact, didn't suffer from that, but he suffered from various personality disorders, but that he was not psychotic or insane. Hmm. Um, Essentially, the prosecution's uh, expert testified that Hinckley was just a bored, spoiled, lazy, manipulative, rich kid. And that Mr. Hinckley's history was clearly indicative of a person who did not function in a usual, reasonable manner. However, they said there's no evidence that he was so impaired that he could not appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or conformed his, or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. I disagree with that completely. Yeah, I yeah. completely disagree with that. I think I, it's so I clear disagree too. Yeah. that he I think it's very clear that he was so impaired that he could not appreciate that. Of course. I think that's so clear. Closing, there were a couple like little moments of drama during closing arguments. The, the prosecutor like walked back and forth in front of the jury holding the actual gun that Hinkley had used in the shootings. Oh, geez. And he shouted to the jurors, This man shot down in the street, James Brady, a bullet in his brain, like while holding like the gun that he used. Like at them? Essentially, yes. God. Yeah, I don't. Not necessary. I agree.
0: So many unnecessary things in this. The movie I agree. The holding
1: the gun. Yeah. yeah. And so then the defense's closing argument. The defense attorney, his he went into like this full recounting of Hinckley's pathetic life, and he kept like relating it back to how Hinckley had this pathetic life to the point that John was sitting crying at the defense table with his face in his hands and like yeah. shaking the entire time. Yeah. Mm. And all the trial had lasted eight weeks. The jury deliberated for three days. John Hinckley Jr. had been charged with 13 counts, and the jury had reached the same verdict on each count. Do you have a guess? No. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Following his acquittal, John Hinckley was transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington until he could prove that he was no longer a threat to society. So, like, just indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. On December 17th, 2003, a federal judge ruled that Hinckley was entitled to unsupervised visits with his parents. He was able to leave the hospital and go visit his parents for one or two day visits at a time. Oh, holy shit. I don't know, judge. Whoa. Um, In 2007, a request was submitted to extend those visits for like month long periods. So like he'd get to go stay with his parents for a month and then have to come back. This request was denied. The judge based this denial not on any on any problems. There had actually been no problems. He was a model patient when he mm-hmm. was in the in the facility. But the judge denied it, saying that the hospital had not taken the necessary steps for such a transition to be able to take place. And then in July of 2016, a judge concluded that John Hinckley no longer posed a serious risk to himself or others. And his release was ordered. He was released wow. on September tenth, twenty sixteen. Wow. With a few conditions. His he has conditions on where he can live mm-hmm. and he has to stay in like the Washington DC area or southern Virginia. Um, and he's not allowed to have any contact with past or present presidents or their <laughs> relatives. Okay. Seems um, fair. And he can have no contact with Jody Foster or or any other entertainers. And he is prohibited from watching violent movies, television, or other violent online digital materials. How do you control that? I, there's no way to control that. Huh. Yeah. Oh, God. I don't know. Ooh. Ugh. Ugh. How does that make you feel that he's been released and deemed no longer a threat. It would probably make me feel better if I knew... What kind of care he'd been receiving yeah. in there, 100%. Yeah. What kind of steps he'd made, what kind of
0: advancements. And, you know, what the hell do I know about oh, any of this? Yeah, I don't so, either. So, you know, maybe you can with talk therapy, with the right medication, with, you know... Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. All I
1: know is if I were Jodie Foster, I'd be watching my back. Oh, fuck yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So within a month of this uh, not not guilty by reason of insanity verdict, kind of an outcry went through the United States of people who felt like this was, there needed to be harsher rules around it and more burden of proof and stuff like that. And so some laws were passed to kind of define those things mm-hmm. more. So it shifted the burden of proof in an insanity, Insanity case from the prosecution to the defense. Two thirds of the states passed measures that required the defense to prove insanity, um, while eight states adopted a separate verdict of guilty but mentally ill. Okay. In addition to shifting the burden in insanity cases, Congress also narrowed the defense itself. Um, legislation passed in 1984 that required the defendant to prove a severe mental illness and eliminated the volitional or co- control aspect of the insanity defense. After 1984, a federal defendant has had to prove that the severe mental disease made him unable to appreciate the nature and quality or the wrongfulness of his acts. And that's all a result of this case.
0: See, that's fascinating to me because I don't really feel like the jury got it wrong at all. I don't either. And so I feel like usually when things change dramatically, it's because the jury got it wrong. I don't think they got it wrong. But maybe it was one of those things where if you're only seeing a few
1: headlines in the yeah. news, you think you, you think, they oh, got God. It yeah, yeah, we've got to get stronger wording around this, which I don't necessarily think stronger wording is bad. No, it's not. I don't yeah. think it is. Yeah. So that's the case of. That John Hinckley Jr. Fascinating. Somebody recommended that we cover, (gasps) and I went back to our messages and I can't fucking find who it was. I'm so sorry, whoever recommended it. Hmm. Thank you for the recommendation. I apologize that I can't find who it was.
0: Well, you know, um, Kyla said you should be fired, and I think that person, whoever
1: they are, I think they're (laughs) going to agree with Kyla. Going to (laughs) agree? No, that was so good. Isn't that fascinating? I didn't know anything about that case. No, no, no. Oh, the obsession with taxi driver and Jodie Foster and. Whew! But yeah. I feel terrible for his parents. Like his dad definitely blamed himself for it and yeah. I think he was doing what he thought he was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I
0: mean, when you're following the advice of a professional. You yeah. sought professional help for your son, you follow that professional's advice and then it turns out to not be the right thing. That's yeah. going to be
1: devastating. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh. What do you got for show notes over there, Kristen? Um, well, nothing really except Something funny has happened. So our the new episode just came yeah. out for last week to yeah. you guys. And people are weighing in on sausage brunch.
1: Nobody's fucking heard of sausage brunch, Kristen. It
0: is hilarious. <laughs> So it seems like maybe other people, and it's usually it's mostly Midwest people. Yeah. seem to have heard of breakfast casserole. Yeah,
1: which I feel like just in general, casseroles are very Midwesty. It's right? true. It's true. Yes,
0: I mean, someone dies in your family, you're you gonna get, get you twelve get a casseroles. casseroles.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> I don't know what y'all do in Boston, <laughs> but here we have casseroles. That's right. But let me let me pull up Twitter because yes. some people had some funny responses that I want to highlight. Okay, so just to catch everybody up, in the last episode, I talked about sausage brunch, thinking it was a thing everyone had heard of. (laughs) Brandy pointed out through much laughter that it, (laughs) in fact, is not something that everyone has heard of. And the reason I told the story was because my dad was over at my house. I had a bunch of tables lined up for Mother's Day. One of the tables was shorter than the other. It was all covered up in a tablecloth. He loaded up his plate with sausage brunch, put it on what he assumed was the edge of the table. It wasn't. It spilled all down his leg. So anyway, this morning, Jillian reached out to us on Twitter and said, I lived in Kansas for 10 years, and today is the first time I've ever heard of sausage brunch. <laughs> so then I was like, okay, I retweeted it. was like, all right, has anyone heard of sausage brunch? And then Grant cracked me up. He goes, is this when a bunch of bears go drinking at 11 a.m.? <laughs> and then, um, let's see. Oh, who said the 80s porno? Oh, then then Alex goes, It sounds like an 80s, 80s porno, port? which I'd never thought of sausage brunch as sounding dirty. Thanks a lot. No, it does. This is a beloved family yes. recipe. Then my dad, of course, tweeted Oh my gosh,
1: your dad's is my favorite. He laughed so hard.
0: He goes, Sausage brunch, a Pitts family tradition for three generations, best served on a table with no false edges. <laughs> So, yeah, a, a few people, uh, Bianca said that she she asked a bunch of people. The Illinois person had had it, but he knew it as breakfast casserole, uh-huh. which does
1: not sound like an 80s porno at all. It does not. So my sister Casey said um, that my grandmother makes sausage brunch. And I was like, no, I've never heard of sausage brunch. And she said, uh-huh. well, she calls it breakfast casserole, but... It doesn't sound like the same thing to me, but Casey claims it is. Yeah,
0: when people when people describe breakfast casserole, no, it doesn't sound quite right because some people are talking about like whole slices of bread. Yeah, no, yeah, that is not what this is. Mm -hmm. Brandy, rest assured,
1: you're going to make me sausage.
0: I'm going to make you sausage first, even though I don't know if you're going to like it. But why won't I like it?
1: You know how you you think I'm a picky eater. I, I think you're you a picky eater. You think I'm a picky eater. <laughs> I, I gave you that test. Do you remember? I remember.
0: Yeah, and it said for sure you were. Okay. Because you were like, oh, I, I don't like tomatoes. I don't like sauces of any kind. I don't like mayonnaise. I don't like blah, blah, <laughs> You have a long list of foods. It's, it's <sighs>
1: I have texture issues. Should we take the test right now? No. mm mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Anyway, so the consensus is that no one has fucking heard of sausage brunch just as I predicted. Well, they've heard of it. It's just been uploaded to Pornhub. (laughs) (laughs) What I love listening back to that segment is you can't hear a fucking word that's coming out of my mouth. And somehow you know exactly what I'm saying. You know what
0: it's like. It's like when someone has a two-year-old uh-huh. and the two year old to you is like blah blah blah, blah and the yeah. ki- and the mom's like, No, you can't have a juice box. Yeah, you know, yes. like and the mom like, understands <laughs> like, what is the
1: secret language they speak.
0: Brandy, I've been listening to you talk through <laughs> laughter for like, what was it, twenty-five years yes. now? We figured out? Yeah. yeah. I I speak it you fluently. Speak my language. I knew you were making Appreciate fun of me. It. <laughs>
1: I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. Do you have show notes? Uh, no, I have nothing.
0: Well, you seem totally unprepared today.
1: <laughs> My case was really fucking long. It was so good. It was so good. Um, you know what though? What we haven't done since we reached our two hundred and fifty, we haven't set a new goal. Oh, do you want to set some ridiculous? No, one? I would like. I I would like to relinquish control of the goal to you. All right, four hundred thousand. <laughs> 300 300 is our new goal in iTunes so please head on over to iTunes leave us a rating leave us a review we would appreciate you forever you know just forever (laughs) you'll have our we'll love you long time (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) Um, and then you know while you're on there head on over to our social media you'll find us on Facebook Twitter Instagram YouTube Reddit
0: and then be sure to join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics
1: Podcast adjourned! And now
0: for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the Vox documentary, False Positive, How Flawed Forensic Science Fails the innocence project wikipedia and
1: newspapers.com and i got my info from an article by denise no for crime library FamousTrials.com, and wikipedia for a full list of our sources
0: visit lgtcpodcast.com any errors are of course ours but please don't take
1: our word for it go read their stuff Purchase new wiper
2: blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And Found.